What I'd like to reflect on in the talks this evening is the theme of a precious human life or a precious human birth. Now, this is a teaching probably most commonly found in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhist teaching. But the themes of this theme run actually, through all the traditions. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver called Messenger. My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums, Hear the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture and the pasture which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, a mouth which with, with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren, to the sleepy dug-up clam, telling them all over and over how it is that we live forever. This line from this poem, let me keep my mind on what most matters. Now, in the beginning of a retreat, I do believe this is a question for us to reflect upon. And to keep our mind on what most matters, this question, it's really a question of why are we here? What is the heart of our practice? What is our aspiration? What is our motivation, our intention? I think when we begin a retreat, of course, we so discover very quickly how our life has followed us onto our cushions and into our walking path. And all the issues and the concerns that occupy us in our life, they're here with us. They don't magically disappear just because we've changed our address. Our mind and our bodies are our companions, and all the things that our mind can do in our life, it will do on this retreat. And we discover, actually, that many things matter to us. Our families, our work, our relationships, our likes and our dislikes, our preferences, all the things we struggle with, all the things we dwell upon, all our hopes and our despairs, all the things that tug at our attention that you've seen tugging at your attention today. These are all things that matter to you. 
It's what the Buddha called the 10,000 joys and sorrows of every human life. Now, in this swirling vortex of so many thoughts, images, feelings that call for our attention, in a way, it's not that easy to keep our mind on what really matters or even perhaps to remember what really matters. And yet, this is what this practice and our life really asks us to do. And perhaps our retreat really begins by exploring that question of what is at the heart of our practice, why are we here? And to do that, of course, we first need to just wake up a little, to find our feet, to find our seat. And then I think we begin to remember that in this changing and uncertain, unpredictable life, what it is that is most of most enduring and deepest value, perhaps we begin to remember what is too important to forget. A friend of mine, and she's here, so I hope she'll forgive me for telling this story. I... I went to her 60th birthday party, which began as a normal birthday party, as they do. And then people were invited to go into this other room where tables were laid out and chairs, and in front of each chair there was a piece of slate. And the invitation was offered to design your own tombstone. Unusual kind of birthday party. (laughs) I said, use your kind of wake-up call. But I thought it was so lovely. What a lovely idea. And imagine if we began our retreat with that exercise, if you all came in here and found a piece of slate on your zabatan and said, let's get started. Design your own tombstone. What would you wish to write? about who you would wish most deeply to be, how you would most deeply wish to live your life, how you would most deeply wish to be present in this moment. I mean, in this practice and in this teaching, we begin by the practice by, by really focusing our hearts, really not just on our breath or our bodies or the present moment even, but we begin by focusing our hearts on our motivation and our aspiration. And I think if we truly are able to ask ourselves in some climate of calmness and stillness what it is in this teaching, in this life, in this path that truly matters, the answers are actually really quite simple. It's not about having a certain kind of experience or a certain level of concentration. What really matters is truly the compassion and the wisdom of a liberated heart. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, this this theme about the preciousness of a human birth is given a profound weight and significance 
as is the question of motivation and aspiration. I certainly personally was very, very surprised when I began to practice and went to the teacher who'd agreed to take me on, um, expecting and demanding, you know, this this idea of being taught tantra, you know, ways to have all kinds of exotic experiences, um, being immediately disappointed when I was actually sent away to reflect and to contemplate for many, many months on aspiration and motivation. And in the Tibetan tradition, these are called the preliminary practices that essentially serve to focus our minds and our hearts on what matters. The Dalai Lama calls these practices preparing the ground of the mind. And then, of course, we would ask, well, preparing for what? And it's really preparing so we can understand what really matters. It's preparing the ground of the mind for compassion and liberation. And these preliminary practices began with the contemplation of interconnectedness. And there was the encouragement to imagine that every single being in this world could at some time have been our mother. And how would we wish to teach them? Now, this immediately caused problems because, you know, my teacher was a little surprised to discover that really not everybody liked their mothers, you know, which was really kind of an unheard of idea, actually, in Tibetan culture, that you might not like your mother. So then he kind of would get creative and sort of imagine that everyone in this world, this universe, could at some point have been your child. And how would you wish to teach them, treat them? I think there's another way of envisioning this, and I'm sure some of you have come across this six degrees of separation theory where it's proposed that through no more than five relationships in your life, you're actually related to every single person on this planet. It's actually quite a phenomenal thought. Then how would we wish to treat them, to relate And really this reflection was not just some sort of abstract imagining, but it was really a training in kindness. It was a training in ethics, in appreciation. Another of the reflections was on karma, karma. Beginning to understand that we, we don't just live in a random universe where All of our thoughts and our acts and our words have no consequence. To understand that every thought, every act, every word splinters into a thousand different pieces that ripples through the world with unnameable consequences where everything matters. To understand how we are constantly being informed and shaped by the world around us and shaping and informing our world in each moment with each act and thought and word. This is not an invitation to become self-conscious or judgmental. 
but to deeply see ourselves as being a participant in the kind of world that we live in and the invitation to be truly a conscious participant. These preliminary practices were really an invitation to expand our hearts, to open our hearts into the sort of family of beings, to widen our area of concern and commitment beyond just our personal lives. Really an invitation to come out of the language of I and you and us and them and into the language of we, we. Another of the preliminary practices was actually this reflection upon the preciousness of human life. And the metaphor that was used was a metaphor of an unsighted turtle. And the story would go, imagine a great ocean, and at the bottom of which lives a turtle without sight. A golden ring floats on the surface of the ocean, moved at random by the waves and the currents. The ring has no mind and is not looking for the turtle. The turtle, having no sight, cannot see the ring. The turtle comes to the surface only once in every hundred years. Can you imagine how rare it would be for the turtle to surface anywhere near the golden ring, let alone encircle her head with it? A precious human life is even more rare than this. Now this teaching of the preciousness of human life or human birth, to me it has two central themes. One of those themes is the theme of appreciation and the other theme is the theme of urgency. And both of these reflections prepare the ground of the mind for compassion and awakening. Appreciation is a sense that none of us could come to be here without the countless small and large acts of kindness and care of countless benefactors that have touched and supported us through our lives from the moment that we were born. Even now, I know for many of you, you have people at home covering for you, looking after families, colleagues, supporting you, all the good wishes that people offer to you that allow you to be here, allow all of us to be here. As Mary Oliver said in her poem, the gratitude to be given this mind and heart, these body clothes. Even those people in our past or in our present who we don't think of as being benefactors, people we struggle with, people who've harmed us or injured us, they actually may have played their own part in asking us to find new depths of patience and equanimity, of dignity, of forgiveness, of generosity, that perhaps in kindlier circumstances we would never have been asked to find. Now, our life perhaps doesn't seem so precious if we live with pain or difficulty. Our 
our life might not seem so precious if it is fraught with worry or burdens or difficulties. But in this teaching, our life is not precious just because we were born. Our life is precious because of its potential. Because our life is pregnant with possibilities. The possibilities of healing suffering. The possibilities of discovering the same freedom that all the Buddhas through time have discovered. The possibilities of discovering the same compassion that all the Bodhisattvas through time have discovered. Our life and our time here in this moment is really an invitation to tap into those possibilities, to really have a sense of the preciousness of this life. It's said in this teaching that used well, this body is our raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this body anchors us to suffering. Used well, this heart is a raft to freedom. Used unwisely, this heart anchors us to samsara. This heart does the bidding of both ignorance and wisdom. Now, knowing the difference between what is wise and what is unwise is really a very big part of this journey of learning to focus our minds and our hearts. And I'm sure that you, we, all of us, we can recall times when our bodies and our hearts have done the bidding of the unwholesome and the unskillful, when perhaps we've acted or thought or spoken in ways that have hurt or injured others or ourselves. And I'm sure we can all also recall times when this body, this mind, truly has been a raft to freedom of compassion. When we have loved well, when we have walked the pathways of kindness and generosity and forgiveness, when we have reached out to others with care and compassion. And in truth, all of these moments in our lives, our journey doesn't begin the moment that we have arrived here. In a way, all of these moments in our lives are endlessly teaching us about what truly matters. It's probably clear to all of us that our capacity for care and for neglect really lives side by side in our hearts as does our capacity to love or to hate, our capacity for fear or to be fearless, live side by side, our capacity to focus or to be endlessly distracted and fragmented. What we see in the practice, in the mirror of this practice, moment to moment, is that what comes into being, what grows and what develops, is what we feed and nurture. Life and, I think, everything that we experience in it 
continues to teach us about the power of hatred and the power of love, the power of nurturing care and compassion, and the power of nurturing all that is healing and liberating, and also teaches us very directly the effects of nurturing all that damages and divides, feeding our demons or feeding our angels. This is very much our choice at the moment. This is the immediacy we come to understand through this practice. And this practice of mindfulness, mindfulness sati, is sometimes translated as remembering. Remembering or keeping in mind. Now surely part of that remembering or keeping in mind is remembering to be awake and present, but it's also remembering why. Why we are endeavoring to be present and awake. And it is remembering that why that make, makes the difference between this practice that we're doing here being just a kind of technique that might have some usefulness in our lives, or it being a practice and a path of liberation and compassion. It's remembering the why. In a way, this teaching of the preciousness of a human birth or a human life is to reflect upon the freedoms that we are blessed with, what we are freed from, and what we are freed to. Certainly we have many of those freedoms, just being here is a testimony to that. We have the freedom uh, of this opportunity to practice, to find a path to unshakable freedom. Just being able to get here is a remarkable freedom in this world. You know, tradition in this teaching has said one of the freedoms that comes with the preciousness of a human life is not, or one of the characteristics of a precious human life is not being born in barbaric times or barbaric places. Now, some of us might have questions about that, you know, but, <laughs> but we have the freedom to make choices. You know, we don't wake up each morning as countless beings in this world do, wondering if we have enough to eat today if we can find the food and the shelter for those that we love, we don't wake up to, to impoverishment and fear every moment in our lives, not governed, every, our lives not governed by fear. Recently I came across a few words. They were spoken by a woman in Darfur. She lived in a terrible refugee camp and many of her family dead. And she said every morning she would woke, wake up to two bleak choices. That if she went out to collect water, she would risk being raped or even killed. And that if she didn't go out to fetch water, she would risk seeing her children die. We do have the freedom of being born in a fortunate place and time, even the possibility of hearing the Dhamma and being able to practice the Dhamma. A couple of years ago, I went to teach in Cuba and I was 
quite astonished to go somewhere where there was no teaching, no Dharma centers, no Dharma books. Even once when I gave a talk and I mentioned the Dalai Lama and people asked me, who's the Dalai Lama? You know, I'm practicing in incredibly difficult conditions when I was there, you know, and you know, I mean, the places were filthy, you know, there was no water, there was no bathrooms, you know, and never knowing that if we were going to be shut down. And the extraordinary resilience of these people, the Cubans who really wanted to practice no matter what the conditions. I mean, everybody sat on dirty floors, you know, no such thing as a cushion, you know, a little sheet wrapped around a book was as good as it got. You know, the chickens and the dogs wandered through, you know, and, uh, you know, it was quite, quite a scene, I can tell you. And every time I would say, they would say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, it, it, to me, it was so humbling. And not only that, that many of these people had saved up out of their rations for a year and a half so that they could contribute a little bit extra food to the people on the retreat. And the result of that year and a half of saving was being able to contribute a jar of mayonnaise and some sesame seeds and some oil. And I thought, it was, I felt so touched by the incredible nobility and the sort of dignity and commitment of these people. And so humbled, and, and in a way just to sense, you know, how many places in this world are like this and how easy actually it is to take so many things for granted. Now, I'm telling you this not to make anybody feel guilty or ashamed or anything like that, but to really have the sense of the appreciating the miracle of waking up each moment, morning, and the miracle of being able to be here, to have a body. It doesn't have to be a perfect body to practice. Actually, who's got one? But to have a body that is well enough well enough to get here, well enough to, to be on a cushion, well enough to move. Isn't it a miracle that we have enough wisdom not to have our lives entirely governed by the craving for power or ambition or prestige? That we have the freedom even to see maybe how insubstantial some of these pursuits are. Even to be able to let go is a great freedom. We also have the blessings of being born as women in this time and place. You know, in Asia, countless women in practice do practice only with the hope of being reborn as a man so they can be enlightened. And that lack of freedom, of course, is not just external but that very internal kind of bondage, you know, born of centuries of being, believing themselves to be actually not adequate to the task, not worthy of the task. You know, many of us actually may see some of those residues and shadows of very similar beliefs in ourselves in small and large ways. But we have the encouragement and the freedom to question and to release the, the kind of lethal binding of some of these belief systems. And I think when we reflect upon our blessings and the freedoms that we have, it is important to understand that we are not just lucky, we are fortunate. Fortunate to have the capacity 
to turn the tides of ill will and craving in our own hearts. The ill will and the craving that gives rise to so much suffering and anguish in the world. Fortunate to have the capacity to nurture all that truly matters. Because these blessings, I think, that we have in our life, they truly speak of our sense of capacity rather than incapacity. They speak about our sense of possibility rather than impossibility. And the possibilities of really embodying a compassion and a wisdom that can heal suffering. And I think our life is really made precious by how we direct and we focus that good fortune and those freedoms and blessings. When they're really directed towards deepening the freedom, the awakening that's possible for us, that ennoble our lives. The second of the teachings or contemplations that are in, in, that or encouragements that follow on the heels of this reflection on the preciousness of human life is to reflect on impermanence. That this life that is so precious is also so fragile that we really, none of us know how long our life will be or how it will end. And this reflection on impermanence is part of the mandala of really focusing our hearts on what truly matters, designed to evoke a genuine sense, not of haste or, or hurry, but a sense of dedication and urgency in a good way, to practice as if our life actually depends upon our practice. Nagarjuna, great Indian teacher, he once said, Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up still. And the the Buddha went on to comment on this. He said, there is no greater realization than being aware of the impermanence of our life that just as the elephant's footprint is the greatest of all the animal's footprints, so is the meditation on impermanence the most powerful of all meditations. It is, of course, not just the fact of impermanence that we're encouraged to reflect upon and know, but to really understand the implications of impermanence and to allow those implications to inform and affect our entire attitude to all things and to how we live our life, to understand the implications of impermanence and to live our life in the light of what truly matters, to live wholeheartedly in an undistracted way, to love deeply all that is precious moment to moment, and to learn to let go. To train ourselves in non-clinging, non-grasping. Essentially, to train ourselves in freedom. And to cultivate that freedom in every dimension of our life. 
And one of the first reflections on the on impermanence, the contemplation on impermanence, is actually the reflection on death. Not just as a theory. Now, like impermanence, none of us really argues with the fact of dying and death. It is part of, of course, our own life cycle. And, you know, it's interesting that in this culture to contemplate death would be considered something incredibly grim and morbid. You know, I remember when we, we bought the center in England, the Gaia House, you know, the, the estate agent, the real estate agent who was showing us around, he, 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 he kind of showed us around very proudly around most of the building. And then we went out into the grounds, and the nuns have a cemetery where many of the nuns who lived at Gaia House are buried. And he kind of hurried us past, you know, in this incredibly sort of almost ashamed or embarrassed way. You know, he said, oh, and and there's a a little cemetery here, you know, but you can plant things around it so you don't see it. And a few of us, you know, the teachers who were going around, we stood there, we said, a cemetery in a meditation center? That is fantastic. You know, and this guy looked at us and we're absolutely nuts, you know, like what kind of people we are really dealing with here. But we can really say that in our culture, the contemplation of death is considered grim and morbid, really from the standpoint of denial and clinging. In truth, the contemplation of death is probably one of the most deeply awakening contemplations that brings our practice and our life, and this moment brings to it surely a sense of urgency to be awake to really understand what it means. I mean, we all experience this. I'm sure you've all experienced what it's like when someone you really care for or love dies. Even when it's expected, it's still somehow always something of a surprise. You know, and, and the loss and the death kind of startles us into a wakeful, a quality of wakefulness. You know, that it felt, sometimes feels so hidden and, you know, immediately, in the face of death, we immediately let go of so much, so much of the historical arguments or resentments or annoyances, and we know that we feel at peace if we've said to that person all that it's been important to say, that we know that we've loved them and cared for them, and we know how regretful we feel in those moments if somehow we haven't communicated all that truly matters. And yet those moments that we're startled into wakefulness by the loss of people we care for, someone we care for, somehow the urgency of it can just kind of, perhaps it's just very human nature, just sort of fades away again, and and we can sort of get back into postponement practice. You know, tomorrow's surely going to be a better day to be awake, you know, and it's surely going to be a more perfect moment to be present in, you know. Tomorrow is surely going to be a better day. I mean, what would it really mean for us, in truth, to live in the light of impermanence and to live in the light of our own death? It could be deeply focusing. It could indeed make us much less forgetful, 
Surely as we know that everyone and everything around us is bound to die, it never occurs to us to question whether that is true or not. It's a certainty. Life only gets shorter and not longer. As Patro Rinpoche once said, he said, death closes in, never pausing for an instant, like the shadow of a mountain at sunset. Yet we tend to treat death like the sound of distant thunder at a picnic. And although we know we will die one day, it doesn't always alter our attitudes to life, because one day sounds very abstract, doesn't it? (laughs) But imagine one day, because we're sure it's going to be some other day, not this one. We don't know that. How would truly to live in the light of our own death really change how we live this day? A lama once said, he said, If I forget to meditate on death early in the morning, my whole morning's meditation becomes incomplete. If I forget to meditate on death at midday, my whole afternoon's meditation becomes incomplete. If I forget to meditate on death when I go to bed, I should stay awake. (laughs) Wonder what our life would be like if we could truly feel while sitting or standing or walking or lying down that this may really be our last act? What would our life be like if we could truly feel while eating or drinking or watching a beautiful sunset to know that this may truly be the only moment that this is possible? What would life be like to breathe just one breath and not counting? on another breath to follow, then surely we would remember what truly matters, to love, to be present, to live wholeheartedly, with appreciation, with gratitude, with commitment, to explore really what it means to to liberate this moment, to liberate this heart, to liberate this life. Somehow, This reflection upon impermanence and death is really not meant to depress us. Mystery seems strange talk, given the first night of a retreat. It's not meant to depress us. It's really meant to open our hearts, to lighten, in a way, our minds. All the hopes and the worries that we can have about the future can maybe seem a little bit less burdensome. All the regrets and the guilt and the and the remorse that we carry about the past. Maybe we can carry them with just a little more ease, to feel a little less entangled. Perhaps living in the light of of that change, perhaps we really put in perspective the struggle to get one thing and to get rid of another, to, to strive for certain states of perfection. Perhaps we can see some of that striving has been a little bit more empty, and really have a sense of coming home to what truly matters, to the love and the compassion, the freedom that we can really nurture in this moment as if it was the only moment possible for us to do that.
teacher said, he said, think about death and impermanence for a long time. Once you're certain you're going to die, you will no longer find it hard to put aside harmful action, nor difficult to do what is wise and loving. After that, meditate a long time on love and compassion. Once love fills your heart, you will no longer find it hard to act for the benefit of others. Then meditate for a long time on emptiness. And once you fully understand emptiness and natural state, you will no longer find it hard to dispel all your delusions. And this human life is made precious truly by our dedication to all that matters. To let go of all the confusions in our heart with understanding and with tenderness, to let go of all that divides us from others, that keeps us locked into struggle and suffering. This human life is really made precious when it is dedicated moment to moment to healing suffering, to care and to peace the peace and the well-being of all beings. This human life is made precious by moment to moment cultivating the wisdom and the compassion that really gives birth to a noble life, a life that is ennobled by compassion, understanding. I'd like to end with another poem, if I may, by Mary Oliver. She writes, who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper. I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. We have just a moment quietly together. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.